Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Watari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who can definitely play enough music to keep flies off a dog's dick. <laughs> oh, man. I I um, found. I mean, technically, it's the flip, right? In the I I wanted to imply I wanted to imply that you were competent at music rather than incompetent yes. at music. But uh, I I died. I had to pause the movie. And then proceeded to die because it is the I, craziest phrase I've ever heard in my entire life. I am the Adam Glass, and uh, there's so many good turns. Oh, I know, in this. but that one, um, I, I yeah, understand the meaning the without understanding <laughs> yeah. any of the meaning. Before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. Uh-huh. It's patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going. You get access to a bonus episode. We do a non-Criterion film over there that our supporters vote on. Always four choices and a theme that usually I come up with based on whatever whims I have. Sometimes, though, uh, the theme is also suggested by our supporters themselves. And usually when that happens, we try to get the person who suggested it on the episode. So we get to talk about, to people about a movie that they presumably like because they suggested we watch it. Uh, I mean, unless they're fun. doing it to, to torture us. I mean, I guess that is always right, a possibility, right, right. right? The fifth option on all of those lists is always the, uh, the exit valve in case they really want to torture us, which is Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal as a genie who raps... And turns a bad guy into a basketball. Who he then slam dunks. Down. It's important to note Slams what he does dunk. with that basketball. Slams dunk down a elevator shaft in a burning building. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. This dude's dead. Uh, <laughs> dude's absolutely dead. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a fun movie that I'm glad we've only watched twice for. Yeah, I mean, it's ex- it's succeeded its 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 value. <laughs> we, yeah, I will no longer derive any has, value yeah. from watching that movie at this point. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, but that's all the $1 mark. You get access to all the all the back catalog of those episodes. You get to vote on the new ones. Uh, and we have a lot of fun over there. There's over 60, I think, at this point. Yeah. So that's a lot. Um, you can watch, you can little, listen to a lot of our thoughts on movies that aren't in the Criterion yeah. Collection at this point. You could spend, you could spend all of 2023 listening to a non-criterion lost in criterion episode. Right, now, assuming you only listen to one of you love that. Assuming you only listen to one a week. Let's be very clear. Uh, about how this But works. only listen to that one that week. So like just constantly have it on repeat. Right. In the well, that's the best. That is the preferred and recommended listening yeah. scenario. Is you Absolutely. inundate yourself, you sleep with it on in headphones. Yeah. Uh, form a really uncomfortable parasocial relationship with us, if possible. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's what we live for, uncomfortable parasocial relationships. Uh, <laughs> disclaimer, don't do not Yeah, do please that. don't do any of the things we've <laughs> talked about for the last, like, five minutes, basically. <laughs> Sign up for the Patreon. That's it. That's where you should stop. Yeah. 
You can listen to those Patreon episodes if you want But not to. constantly. And the parasocial thing. Definitely not recommended. We're not yeah. equipped for it. <laughs> no. Not. We will not handle that well. I'm a Midwestern straight white guy. Not, ha- we not will, equipped we to handle will, that well. Things will go bad real fast. Yeah. A little above that $1 mark. At, uh, at $5, we'd like to thank those folks on air, folks who uh, can afford it and help keep us going a little bit more. So thank you so much to Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, Andrew Jarrett, and Stephen Goldmeyer, our $5 supporters right now. Yes, thank you. A bit above that, at $10 and above, we do something pretty dang special. Yeah, Pat do. makes a piece of art based on one of the moves we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard. Once a month, we mail those off to our uh, $10 and above supporters with a little personalized thank you note from me. Also, I'd like to thank those folks on air, and thank you so much to our supporters at that level, Nina Boschnack, Patrick Yalko, Tracy McGrath, Adam Speakerman, and Jason Westhaver. So yeah. grateful to have you guys supporting us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you want to see those postcards or buy old postcards, hey, this episode posts on January 20th. That means my birthday's tomorrow, Pat's birthday's next week. You could buy one of these cards and send it to us as a birthday greeting. That would be both awesome and also very surprising. That would be very surprising. Also, getting getting your own art in the mail. Uh, I used to do that, and it, sending it to Pat takes like three weeks. Yes, it's a, and it's covered in postage <laughs> At the stamps. minimum. At the minimum. Like, you it arrives here just covered in postage marks. Yeah. Like, from like four Some different stickers. like postage systems, like Belgium and France. It's, it's like, it, the art's not even visible after they get done with it. But uh, but go to redbubble.com, search for The Lost in Criteria, and you can see those old postcards and buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers, uh, sometimes as buttons. One as a T-shirt. Uh, we can make more T-shirts requests, later. You know. We could. We Recently, could the things I've been producing exist in their base form at extremely high resolution, so they can be turned oh, into go. high resolution prints. Thank you to everybody who's supported us through the Redbubble, who's uh, purchased anything from there, who's supported our Patreon, and thank you to you for listening. We're grateful. Yes, thank you. We really do appreciate it. Ah. Pat, this week we uh, we start a pair of films directed by Terry Zwigoff. Uh, this is... The Criterion has done a thing like this before. In that when they get a movie that's a critical darling, like Zwickoff's Crumb, documentary uh-huh. on our Crumb, uh, they get the rights to that, uh, but it's just come out, so they can't release it for a while. So the first announced release is a different movie from the same director, possibly an earlier movie, often the first movie from the same director. And we've seen we've got some examples of this happening in the past. Uh, that I can't think of offhand, but yeah, I know no, I, that yes, talk yes, before. we can. We yes, there's de- there are definitely prior examples uh, of this phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, the weird thing about this is that Zwickoff owned the rights to both Crumb and and this week's movie, which is uh, Louis Bluey. Um, so they they they're releasing they release them back to back, right? Which is which is odd uh, within that phenomenon within. Uh, within the Criterion Collection, Crumb is actually next week's movie, <laughs> so we uh, 
instead of waiting four years before we see the movie that Criterion actually wanted to point right. put out, uh, we get it this week. And I think there's probably, like some discussions we've had about this phenomenon in the past, there's probably an argument to be made that's a little stronger with Louis Bluey that maybe this should have just been a bonus feature on the Chrome DVD. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this one, it's weird, right? Because, like, I really, really, really enjoyed this movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely love it. And, like, totally worth watching as an independent film, but it's also only 60 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah, I only say that because it's only 60 minutes long. I I am very glad to have the opportunity to talk about this movie on its own. Uh, instead of right, it, it would to have and to a certain extent it would Crumb. have done a disservice to this movie to have to tie it into Crumb. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of um, things that could be compared there. Like you know what I mean? I'm sure you can do a lot of good work, like playing around between the themes that are similar. I haven't watched Crumb yet, yeah. but I can only assume. Um, it seems like this this director has a a thing that they're going for. Um, but that being said, uh. It would have been a, it would have done a disservice probably to this movie. Yeah. So uh, Terry Swigoff produced Louis Bluey uh, independently in 1985, and the progency of this movie is is kind of interesting. Uh, basically, Zigoff Zigoff was in a band with Crumb, playing throwbacks of like 1920s music. Uh, and he was super into 1920s music and he had a 78, he collected 78, Swigoff did, um, uh, that was labeled Louis Bluey was the guy listed as being on it. And he kind of logically assumed this guy was dead, uh, didn't have access to his real name anyway. Uh, but he, or the internet or the internet. But he got curious and started digging. And one of the other guys listed on that uh, disc was under his real name. It was Ted Bogan. And Ted Bogan was still alive, living in Chicago. And Zwigoff called him up, got to talking, found out that Louis Bluey was alive, was this guy Howard Armstrong. Uh, so got in touch with him. And Zwigoff basically was planning to write an... Uh, an article on these guys for an old timey music magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some, sometime during all those talks decided that it should really be a movie. And at the time Zwigoff had never made a movie. Okay. And he, nice. he was, he was working as a, uh, as a, I think a call center rep, <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe physically meeting with people for California's public health department. Okay. Like, so, or public health insurance, I think, uh, cow health. Uh, so, so he just decided to make a movie <laughs> and, and he describes it as the best way to decide to make a movie, uh, that, <laughs> sure. that the best, the best film school is to see your money burning in front of you (laughs) (laughs) as you decide to make a movie. (laughs) Because as your savings uh, dwindle, you know that this has to be a good movie. (laughs) Otherwise, you're really screwed. (laughs) 
So uh, it, it, it is an interesting theory that I think yeah. no one should try to put into practice. On right, right. No. Yeah, he's working in the Department of Social Services uh, as an intake worker for Medi-Cal. Um, but yeah, just uh, decided to to quit and make this movie. Uh, it says he was very naive about the whole thing, uh, primarily about how much money doing right. this would cost, which you think he'd have some idea about. But it, because even beyond equipment and and uh, and time and editing and getting it released and actually in front of people, that's that stuff you wouldn't think about. But he is planning to travel from California to Chicago to Indianapolis to Tennessee. Uh, and he, you'd think he'd have an idea about how much that would cost. <laughs> right, but, right. Uh, he says he says he burned through his life savings in the first week and a half. Oh my god! Um, While well, he's still trying to make, a, trying to learn how to make a film. Man, so, I can't. Yeah, that that level of like self risk is just wild to me. Yeah, but at the yeah, same absolutely. time, you, you I mean. You know, it paid off in this in- instance because it's yeah, good job uh, <laughs> good from work. from word one. Uh, you know, this is obviously a movie that was made in the editing because it's also very obvious they just let the camera run while right. these guys jammed and 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 <laughs> droned on. Uh, uh, but from word one of this movie, it's, it's super engrossing and very oh, good. Yeah. It starts with it starts with Armstrong telling a story of how he got the nickname Louie Bluey about some <laughs> a drunk woman who worked. What was she? Was a funeral director or, yeah, or a mortician? What he referred to. Yes, um, but he was. Well, she was. Yes, he, she was not yeah. an undertaker. Her father was an undertaker, and she worked yes, at his undertaker's yes. shop, which was already yes. kind of interesting because, like, we ran Louie Bluey immediately runs into the same problem we all run into, which is like, what's that thing called? What, right. What right. is the what yeah. is the name of this thing uh where yeah. an undertaker works? Yeah. Um Armstrong at this point is uh, about 75 years old while we're recording. Um good news he I lasts mean, while, while for a much longer time. Oh yeah, yeah, he lived for another 20 years. Um and still always looked about 45 yeah. <laughs> apparently <laughs> even up to his death. Uh, but certainly does not look 75. The other guys who he's been friends with for 70 years, um, or the Bogan he's been friends with for 70 years. Actually, interesting, though, the other musicians we see him play with here, uh, Banjo, Ike Robinson, and Yank Rachel, uh, they never met before production. Interesting. Um, Yeah, yeah. They obviously have a really good rapport almost immediately, uh, and they're talking like old friends. Um, but, uh, but Armstrong and Bogan had never met them. Uh, there was a third guy involved with Armstrong and Bogan, uh, whose name was Carl Martin and Martin Zwigoff had thought Martin would be like the great foil to Armstrong. Uh, he was engaging. He was, he was smart, uh, in, in the ways I mean, Armstrong's obviously very smart as well. Uh, they're all phenomenal musicians. That takes well, yeah, and they're all like they really have, quick wits, other... like really quick wits. <laughs> they're quick wits. They're quick wits. Half of them speak at least one other language. Yeah, um, other than ra- English. Very random uh, languages too. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, you know, just by the nature of the industry, they've learned Italian and Hungarian and and other, uh, you know, other languages to interact with immigrant communities around the around the U.S. through the 20th century, which is very interesting. Uh, but anyway. Zwickoff thought that Carl Martin would be the co-star of this movie, basically, because mm-hmm. Bogan was a little more insular. Yeah. You know, he's quieter, even in the take we get. Uh, and unfortunately, Martin died right before production started. Wow, man, that sucks. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that put Zwickoff into a bit of a tailspin in trying to figure out other things out. Uh, so he found some other older guys who used to do this sort of thing who were famous in their own right. And invited them in. And Banjo Ike, uh, particularly, was reticent to uh, to join um, because he uh, he was real big in the blues scene and thought that it might, being associated with this type of music more overtly, mm-hmm. which he had been in the past, but still... Uh, you know, the sort of string band stuff was, it's not jazz, it's not blues. Uh, it's definitely related in the lineage of music, but it's more comedic in okay. a lot of ways, too, right? You know, it's not as serious music, uh, lyrically. It's fun right? right in a way right. that, that jazz and blues are not necessarily fun. So he was he was reticent to become involved. Because he, I mean, he kind of maybe reading between the lines thought it was beneath him. Uh, but he still showed up and met Armstrong and Bogan and had such a good rapport with them immediately and decided he liked them. Saw that they were good, good instrumentalists, period. Uh, even if he wasn't super into the music they were doing um, anymore. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like the story of the Blues Brothers where uh, Cab Calloway showed up and wanted to do wanted to do uh, all his songs as disco songs, not not knowing, right. not understanding that anyone's still into the blues, right? Um, yeah, this is a guy who was really into the blues and didn't think didn't think artistically he should still be into string music, right? <laughs> string band stuff. Uh, so yeah, anyway, he showed up. They had a good rapport, uh, and it's interesting that. Not, none of them had ever met before, basically. Yeah. Armstrong and Bogan, obviously, they knew each other for decades, decades, decades. Since Although it's hard to tell in the in the movie how long it had been since they actually hung out together. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I think another thing is that Armstrong's still very sharp, right? Right. He's, he's not. Uh, I think Bogan... Bogan is less so or perhaps on medication that is right. keeping him from being as as that does that does as, as, seem pretty apparent too yeah. you know and also like you get the impression that perhaps like I, I feel like at one point or another Armstrong makes a reference to the fact that like maybe they haven't seen each other in like a while yeah yeah it's definitely possible too and I mean that happens. That may be the, over the woman o- me over reading between the lines, but it just yeah. it was like something he said was like, "Oh, you guys actually haven't like hung out, hung out in like twenty years." Yeah, yeah. Um, it's my understanding that uh, that Bogan Armstrong and um, 
and I just Martin has had basically not played together for many years, but then started playing together again in the seventies. Okay, and actually, uh, this movie gets reviewed on Cisco and Ebert at the movies. Um, and Ebert's Ebert's review gets a little more into this, but but his review on the show uh, talks that he had seen them play. Okay. Like a friend of his who owned a bar in Chicago said, "You got to come out. I'm not going to tell you anything about what these guys actually do because if I do, you're going to say that's not for me. But you got to come out." And uh, and he did, and he loved them, and he lost touch with them, and then suddenly there's this movie about them. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, that he that they both, Cisco and Ebert both really love this movie, and it's I hard mean, not to love this. Yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I don't know. I it is hard to conceive of Ebert. a person not liking this movie. Ebert. I'm sure that person exists, I, but it's well, that is very very good. That is true and false. I think at the same time uh, for Ebert because uh, his his full review, while he still I believe he gives us you know four stars or whatever he he rates his movies on. Uh, he also talks about how there there's maybe a little too much music in the movie, and he he is not especially interested in hearing some of the the uh, uh, non English folk music that gets played in the movie. Okay, um, but uh, see, which, like I don't I don't quite get that. That does that actually? I, yeah, I don't get it either. I don't understand like why you would not be heavily engrossed by the idea of like the idea that these guys had to like adapt to the circumstances that they were put in and like learn types of music that like they maybe weren't even maybe they were interested in maybe they weren't but like that was just like well you got to do what you got to do right like right it's part of that that it's either do this or 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 star right and there there's a there's a value and i guess it's whether or not you see a documentary like this as a valuable piece of sort of like historical data or not yeah and like to me yeah like i can't not watch this movie and think like if it weren't for this movie how much of this information just would not exist right like how much stuff right. would that we just learned would literally just be dead in like dead information that nobody knows because yeah i mean is- they're walking around i'm sure i mean like certainly armstrong is telling stories to lots of people he meets that seems to be right. a thing that he would do right but like, yeah. is he telling those stories to people who are going to make any sort of record of that? Um, and barring this movie existing, like the idea that there, you know, that there were a bunch of blues musicians walking, around, you know, touring around the country, playing in various sorts of uh, like immigrant community bars and hangouts, songs that those immigrant communities would like recognize from home, and learning new songs from those those communities. Like I, I'm sure that information's written down, but like, and it, you know, having a person with a face attached to it is a very valuable bit of thing to do, right? Yeah. Rather than it just being a nebulous idea that this thing happened in this era, now you have real people who did it recorded talking about it and even performing it, and it's not just a, right. it's not just a thing that like somebody could toss off later as like, oh, they were just like bullshitting us and bragging and saying they could do this or they did this or they did that. You have physical video recorded evidence of them playing these songs and playing them like well and singing in a different language. You know what I mean? Like there's something really engaging about that, that if you miss that, I don't know how you would not find that intriguing. (laughs) It's baffling to me. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. That's like saying yeah, that, like this... like watching the moon landing and be like, ah, whatever. The video quality on this <laughs> sucks or something. It's like I don't know. Like what yeah. what? Yeah. Yeah. This I mean this just is a piece of ethnography. Exactly. Of Americana histor- histor- <laughs> historical piece. Yeah, this is yeah. It, it's it's, it's invaluable. It and 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 yeah. it's sort of it reminds me of other pieces that I've seen like this where it comes down to a very enthusiastic person making a very ill-advised film. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there's no reason you should be doing this. Person yeah. who used to work as an intake person at like Cal Health. Yeah. But like only that kind of person would decide to make this kind of film, if that makes sense. There's a there's I think a that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, there's a certain sort of, of hubris slash like in severe interest in the to- in the topic that produces some of the best versions of this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the other like music documentaries we've seen in the Criterion Collection so far have been music documentaries about uh, famous bands. Right, exactly. Not. And the other documentaries we've seen about sort of just randos, uh, you know, the Maisel's documentaries, not just Grey Gardens, but the, oh, what's the other one? The 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 one about the door-to-door salesman. Oh, um, um, oh, what is the name of that? Is it just called Salesman? I can't remember. Is it? Anyway. No, right? No, uh, what? There's, there's something about the way the Maisel's handle their topics that feels <sighs> exploitative, um, that feels. I yeah, I know even even yeah. without being even without being negative, exploitative is a very that's a that's a charge, right? Um, and we talked about that with Grey Gardens, and and I stand by what we said about it. But uh, but in any case, it's not it's not a topic the Maisels love. Well, that, that's Zoe, yeah. That's where Zagoff I was going to go with it. Even if it's not exploitative, the they've here. identified that something they think an audience will be interested in, rather than something yeah. they're deeply interested in. That they're like, "Fuck it, I'm making a movie about this, whether whether it kills me or not." Um, there's a very different attitude that comes with that, right? And and there's a certain sort of love and care that goes into it, where like, you know, it, there's a, it's really hard to define, right? Because both of them involve leaving the camera on essentially nonstop. But then yeah. the editing choices that follow after that, you're leaving that camera on for a different reason. And one, you're trying to like get the best possible like movie out of it, right? Where you're right. saying, like, I want to catch all the like funny stuff and like weird stuff that will make people want to watch my movie. And then there's leaving the camera run and then editing for the purposes of like I want to catch the the best version of this person that tells right. you the most about this person or this topic. Right. And that will involve sometimes just letting them play an entire song and like that's the whole fucking song's just going to be right. on the movie because why would you stop it in the middle? What are you a maniac? Yeah. I uh 
One of my favorite bits of this movie is when Robinson essentially eats an entire bucket of chicken in the background. <laughs> yes, well, yes, well, yes. And then they all well, give bucket. him shit for it. Like, well, yeah, well, yeah. Armstrong, and Armstrong is just, did you eat the entire bucket of chicken? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I have to, ima- I have to imagine that might be early, like, like, uh, like maybe Zwigoff convinced convinced robinson to even show up with the right. promise of with lunch, some, with promise of lunch yeah <laughs> so, so he's just like well i'm getting my, i'm getting at least, at least getting my money's worth <laughs> yeah uh but yeah oh uh, yeah yeah and and half the you know he's they're giving you know armstrong and, and bogan are going back and forth in that bit and 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 he's just in the background eating the chicken and like rolling his eyes at him, like it's it's before they've really connected. I yeah, like. yeah, yeah. But yeah, then they play together and it's phenomenal. And, and like, yeah, uh, I I read, I I immediately fell in love with this movie. I immediately oh, fell in yeah. love with Armstrong. I uh, I don't have a lot of exposure to to string bands. Um, with the exception, I think, uh, as as a hipster in America, alive in the last uh, last ten fifteen years, I uh, I have heard a lot of the Carolina chocolate drops. Okay, um, but I don't know. I I really love Rihanna Giddens' music, even outside of the ch- chocolate drops. Uh, but I didn't know enough about the Carolina chocolate drops say, to know that they took their name from the Tennessee chocolate drops, who uh, Bogan and Armstrong played with. <laughs> Right. Uh, in the twenties, that was their band. Uh, in the late twenties, um, yeah. So you know, I like the music, but I'm not into the music. Uh, right, it's not music that, that you're personally seeking out yeah, to like listen to on your, right. you know, on your i, it you is, know, your phone or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's pleasant to hear, but it's not. It's not anything I own or or have sought. Uh, so you know, to to have have this then randomly given to me by the Criterion Collection. Absolutely love it. So glad to have heard it and and went on kind of a deep dive of uh of outside information with Armstrong and and about the movie particularly. So uh, I also read a an interview with Zwighoff by uh the Fretboard Journal uh from from around the time this came out uh interviewing him about uh making the film. Um and uh, uh, read, you know, obviously I already talked about. It. I I went to the the Ebert review and and watched the watched the segment on, uh, on the movie from from Cisco and Ebert's at the movies, uh, and just there was a point last night after I watched the movie where I had like twenty tabs open, right, different. Right. <laughs> different between information on Armstrong and interviews Zwigoff gave about the film. I just had had so much information in front of me. Um and yeah, it's just I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. It immediately it, it triggered can, something. You I can guess definitely is what I'm like go on a there's a lot to get you know, <laughs> yeah. it's really always a question of whether or not this is the kind of it may not ever be the kind of movie that you or a kind of music that you will purposely just like cue up. Um yeah. But it's a really kind of view, valuable music to like, kind of come in contact yeah. with, and learn about. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there, it, for me, like I didn't grow up with this kind of music or anything like that, but I encountered it fairly often visiting family, uh, or at least adjacent types of music to this, because right. you would you right. will you will steal and like 
those sort of revival things that will happen in in the sort of Appalachian Mountain area, you will encounter people playing string band type music. Um, right, right, right. But you know, it was always just sort of a background thing, it's, and so it's like a little bit. It's it can have a bit of a nostalgic vibe when I listen to it and be like, oh, okay, like I know I know this kind of music. This is familiar to me, but like I couldn't name a song or an artist, right? Other than people who happen to be at county fair type deals. <laughs> other than the guy on my uh, on his porch next to my grandma's house, that that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. The like yeah. you would just encounter it from time to time where people were either doing it as a thing to like try to keep our form alive or it's just some older folks doing a thing that they just know to do. Right. right? Right. Um, but yeah, like as a, as an art form that like you can engage with on a more sort of artistic level, it's not a thing I've ever done before. So it was interesting. I don't know. I feel like if I were, if I were Zygoff thinking about making this movie, even even as my life savings is burning up incredibly yeah. quickly right in front of me. One plane ticket uh, and you're already out. Yeah. There's so much sort of in the background of this movie that feels feels so like providence or the universe or whatever whatever you might believe or or just the sheer momentum of coincidence that makes it feel like you have to keep going with this project. Right, right. Just, just you finally found you, you. You called Ted Bogan, and he is alive. And he says, "Oh yeah, Howard's still alive too. Give him a call." And then and you spend five minutes like, talking to the <laughs> to an absolutely wild to like listen to and talk to yeah. person. Yeah. And then you're like, well, you know, the the other guy I wanted to be in this movie has passed away, so maybe I'll just call one of my other musical heroes and see if he wants to do it. Right. And he says yes. Um, and then the uh, the woman they meet in Tennessee, whose name I can't recall right now, and I I uh, I I've, I have already forgotten the names of almost every yeah. person we meet in this movie. Right. It is, every, it is certainly a curse. every proliferate. Yeah. yeah. The woman they meet in Tennessee, uh, who's playing like the public thing, um, yeah, I that they yeah, just right. show up because they go down. They go down to Tennessee because Armstrong, uh, Armstrong wanted to. Uh, uh, you know, they decided to go. Like he shot all this, all the interview stuff with them, like in Chicago, right. And then started editing that and decided that they needed more footage. So he, he, he picked up Armstrong and they decided to go to his hometown. And on the way down, they're like talking about, well, you know, this person X, person X, you know, all these, all these different people who were all dead or moved away when they got down there. Right, right. So they're driving around thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they're in a different town. And, uh, run across this woman who is just hosting like uh, a a night you know everybody play uh and they're yeah they're in a different uh, it's not the town they went to go to anyway right. it's like 8 miles away and it's <laughs> they see a banner that says music at the big barn this is from the the fretboard journal <laughs> 
interview, by the way. See a, see a banner that says music of the big barn every Saturday night, bring your fiddle. It's just, uh, you know, everybody show up and play together. Right. Um, and he walks in and introduces himself. Uh, and the lady introduces herself as, as Willie. And he thinks, oh, I recognize her. Uh, and he can't place her, he can't place her. And he finally realizes that uh, Old Time Music magazine that he wanted, you know, the the where he was originally going to sell this article when it was yeah. going to be an article. One of the copies he had had this had a profile on this woman. Uh, like recently. Her name's Willie Sievers. Uh she played with the Tennessee Ramblers. And just coincidentally, she's right. hosting this night, weekly night. And he goes goes in. And so he's talking to her like, oh, oh, I, I'm, I'm a little familiar with you. Um, particularly remembered her because she was holding this really rare Gibson in like the picture in the magazine on the cover. Right. Uh, and then Armstrong walks in behind him and they know each other. Right, of course. They... <laughs> Which of course, you know, they didn't live that far apart. She's up she's been in this Tennessee town for years and years and years. But like their family bands had recorded the same day at the same studio. Right. Like fifty years prior was probably the last time they'd seen each other. Right, like, right. Yeah. So like all these little things of well, just and it that's working the thing, out. right? Is it it is right, and you can see why it would yeah. compel him, right? Like you, okay, I've got right. to keep going, right? And I and I agree completely, but you also run into this thing where it's like, well, what, this is what he's done is he's wandered into what amounts to a small world, right? You know right. what I mean? That's fair too. Which, which like, n- like not to downplay like the sort of luck that he is he has encountered, but, but like you've entered into a community that is small enough and has dwindled in size enough. That now, and is from a specific region of the country, where now you're, yeah, every town you go to, more than likely, you're going to, if you hunt around a little bit in that town, will find people who are associated with this community because it is a regional phenomenon that, that had its heyday a long time ago, and a majority of the numbers have dwindled to the point where, well, yeah, I mean everybody who is still around could find everybody who else is still around. Right. Yeah. Uh, because Maybe. they, they and, and, and yeah. even if they can't, like they all knew each other at one point or another, because you are playing a specific right. kind of music in a specific region. Also including the fact that you were not, they, you know, we're talking about people who were not allowed to participate in what would be called mainstream society. Right. Which I white society, right. They weren't allowed to participate. Right. So like, they couldn't get the sort of national recognition that another band from this region might and sort of explode outward, right? Um, right. It, I mean, he... I am I am overjoyed that, like, he found this sort of topic and made the discovery that, like, oh, I can... Yeah. This will just keep sort of, fra- like, yeah. fractaling out infinitely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, there were there were probably... No doubt, musicians he could have pursued to make a documentary about who would not have been enga- as engaging as Howard Armstrong. Mm. Howard Armstrong is a cool guy. Yes, who <laughs> is awesome to listen to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, 
is is very charismatic in the role he is he is taking part in in this movie right yes uh he is perfect for this frankly right and he's got a lot of phenomenal great stories that you know maybe they're embellishments maybe they're not doesn't matter. Uh, whatever doesn't matter they're good stories like the the story about the the italian bar they go into in chicago while pulling doors not realizing that joe lewis had just knocked out uh an italian heavyweight right and every you know record scratch as they walk in the door and he stops and the and the, the washboard guy behind him runs into him and they, yeah very, you know, they all paints just, a very you know, comedic scene right unfolding yeah, like a, something out of a cartoon almost yeah. And talks about talks about starting his uh his his in on his Tennessee Italian and they all they all react to that well and then he knows all the all the old folk songs that all these old drunk Italians know. And that's you know, Zwigoff makes a makes a smart choice, a non a non documentary choice of intercutting that story with just random pictures of Italian old men in bars. Right, <laughs> yes. You know. Uh to 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 paint the imagination of our viewer and we're also intercut with armstrong's own visual paintings uh of uh of his memories of this event as well uh and you know the the focus on his on his visual art is also very interesting yeah i mean and it's a nice tool right because it it rounds out his the sort of all we can get of him as a as a artists sort of in every sort of yeah. field to a certain extent, right? Like he's a, a true right. creative talent. Yeah. Yeah. And his, his talk on that public art piece that we see him interact with where he's talking about how, how he only believes in realist art, how, how he doesn't, doesn't understand uh, a piece like that. You know, essentially, you know, he doesn't call it pretentious, but that's, if he wanted, I mean, yeah, if we wanted to sum up what, what he says about it in yeah. one word, that's what he's doing. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just interesting to to get to get so much of who this guy is into right. this movie, right? Uh, there is there's one other thing from the fretboard interview that as Wigoff says, he included the uh, the ABCs of pornography section mm-hmm. because he felt like a lot of documentaries, particularly at the time of jazz and blues and string band and as much as there were documentary <laughs> documentaries about string bands uh glossed over the sexuality and humor of the of the right, lyrics of the right. music and he wanted to make sure that was full on display in his version and he he says i think i probably laid it on a little too thick uh, yeah i mean it is a bit of a long yeah. section that did to a certain extent come out of nowhere considering my family was hanging around the house while I was watching that part. We are, we are, we are just watching an old man show another old man pornography. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But in the the end, I decided to take it in stride as being a fairly humorous, like bit. Like it is, it is, it is funny. Um, and I get why I, I, I understand the, the, you know, Zerdov's compulsion there, right? Like I get it. Like, and I can't fault him for it. Like, yeah, the idea there is a desire to strip out the sexuality from art, especially like you know certain eras of art to just sort of uh, sort of um, you know um, sort of I don't know what the word I'm looking for to sort of 
I don't know what word I'm looking for. You kind of strip out everything that seems untoward about them um, and make it all seem very clean and squeaky and, 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 you know, and sort of erase the fact that, like, you know, these are like a bunch of dudes touring around the country, right? Like, it's, it's got a, yeah. it's got a certain vibe to it, right? Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, he, he sort of lays his success in Chicago at, at his childhood of, uh, of interacting with all the different ethnic groups within the Appalachian towns he was living in. Right. Yeah. You know, of, of, uh, one being a kid overcoming many of the racial barriers period. Um, but also, you know, the Hungarian, and that's how he earned, learned Italian. Uh, yeah, I right. think at one point he says he he, he spoke better Italian. Yeah, than, than, than he English. did English. Yeah, which I yeah. mean, maybe maybe exaggeration, but like nonetheless, right. like with the the read is like, oh, you know, like you you were already like at a very young age doing whatever you needed to sort of do, right? Um, and and also just points out like sort of how how um just how smart and, and like sort of attuned to the world around him he is and was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's not, <laughs> I think there are, t- there are times where we interacted with stories like this, where folks would talk like maybe it wasn't so bad back in those days. Yeah. But he's, he makes no qualms about that. Right. He's like, yeah, there were, there were fiddle competitions I couldn't be a part of because I was black. And, you know, you, you alluded to the, to this, to the line about the white guys in your introduction that, you know, he insults, he insults the people yeah. who ended up winning contests like that uh, because they couldn't, they couldn't fiddle. Well, uh, and they, they had, yeah, they had essentially the, stripped out the half the, the ha- more than half the competition that they were going to have to compete right. against. On right, on, seg- right. on you know racial segregation lines, it's you know it it's it is interesting because like yeah I I agree that that's part of in line with the same sort of things that you would see right as, alongside removing all the bits about you know sexuality and stuff like that would be sort right. of toning down just exactly how much you know racism played a role in in sort of the decisions right. that the artists had to make right. And what they were right. were not allowed to do or participate in, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's you know he's, he's not qual- no qualms about that, right. and you know uses a couple of slurs himself, uh, not not right. directed at anybody, but, but he uh, he uses a uh, what's he when he's describing the wine they're drinking at that Italian bar in Chicago. He, he calls it. Uh, oh, I don't even uh, remember Dago, that. Dago juice, I believe he calls it. Uh, but he does a, he does use that that D word. Uh, that is a in a slur on Italians. Um. But uh, but yeah, yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. Uh, I love. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to talk about a movie like this one because it's so short. One because it's not it's not exactly technically a great film. You know, uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, level, it's not. I it's mean, not a great film. Yeah, uh, 
it's just super interesting subject matter about a super interesting guy, and I'm glad it came together. So it's hard to talk about it without just talking about this story that he told was well, really great, or this song that they played was really right. Great. And and that's but, part of the problem, and not a problem per se, but it is a kind of problem for us is that like it 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 is it's a documentary, so it's not really it's non narrative, right? So we can't talk about the story. We can't really talk about as you mentioned the technical achievements because yeah, the movie is not centering around the idea of technical achievement right it it's not it's not about that um it is about doing sort of the best possible job of putting a person in the culture that a person is attached to in front of a camera right and making sure that the camera captures as much of that as possible in the time that is allowed right um and then in that as a documentary is incredibly successful because you you yes. both know that Zwigov has a huge hand on on the rudder in terms of like, well, we know he's editing it. He's choosing what's in there. He's choosing what's not in there. He's he's uh, you know he's the man making the decisions about what this movie is. But yeah, unlike a Maisel's film, like we've talked about before, that hand doesn't feel heavy. Right. We don't. We don't the the hand feels like a guiding hand on a rudder that's sort of leading us on a journey, yeah. Rather than a hand that's deciding what the movie is about. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the background information on this movie is that even in the finished product, Zwigoff thought he was doing something different than what he was doing here. Um, interesting. Zwigoff thought he was doing sort of, uh, you know. We talked about it with Mystery Train a couple of weeks ago with Jarmusch and uh, and Screaming Jay Hawkins, um, where Jarmusch featured featured Hawkins' music, found out Hawkins was basically living in destitution, and then had Hawkins in his next movie to to sort of right. try and make sure this guy was making. And that's sort of sort of what Zivikov was trying to do here not not necessarily make the money because he wasn't going to be able to make the money. He knew that, but. Uh, one of his premises in this film, even while editing, was that he wanted to show how immensely talented and uh, uh, and intelligent and, I suppose, deserving of good life these guys were. Right. Compared to how they were living in uh, down on their luck in their in their 70s. And I don't know that he succeeds in showing them as living in a down on their luck sort of way, if that really is. Well, his because point. and that comes down to the the so his 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 subjects, right? They are, right. especially with Armstrong, are such positive, upbeat people, right? That like it's hard to convey that bit of information, right? <laughs> like, you know. That being yeah. said, what you he does do an excellent job of putting their talent on display, right? And saying to the world, like, great "Hey, job putting the talent on display, you that everybody should be paying a lot more attention to these people who largely seem forgotten by culture and and their their role in the development of you know music history is largely being ignored, right? Um, right." He yeah. has a very yeah. admirable that, job of that. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know. If, 
if Zigov had approached it from that point, from from wanting to to capture these guys musically and their and and who they were for posterity's sake, uh, instead of this particular aspect of that, you know what he what he says he was trying to do is still partially that right, but um, but I don't know if he had just approached it from that point, we'd get maybe a musical documentary, uh, you know. A concert film more than, a, than right, what we have yeah. here. We're still about fifty percent concert film, but right, <laughs> but well, yeah. but you know, in I a concert see, film, I can see it would change what it was. Right, I mean, a concert film, depending on how it's approached, is 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 yeah, a documentary or not, right? Like it, the the you know what ends up happening is you end up with his the concert stuff serves serving as a kind of supporting element to the um to what Armstrong is talking about, right? Right. You, right. And 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 I think I think the blend is about as good as you could ever imagine, right? Like it's this is both one of the best concert films I've ever watched and one of the best musical yeah. documentaries I've ever watched. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh yeah. in terms of that that balance is near perfect here. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it gets away from what what Zugoff says was his point of, of showing their destitution versus who they are. Right. Uh, because, not just because Armstrong's so charismatic, but maybe Armstrong is, is himself trying to limit uh, talking about being bad off where they are. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. And, you know, that, yeah. that's a thing, right? Like, people don't yeah. want a, movies to be made about how bad poor they poor are they or something are. like yeah. that yeah 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 um and i don't i don't know that armstrong armstrong certainly doesn't come off like he's doing any of that posturing but there's maybe some acknowledgement of that posturing in calling the movie louis bluey in using armstrong's stage name as the title of the film that that this is an act to a certain right. extent yeah right i can see but, that yeah yeah, I don't know. It's something to think about, but I don't know. I don't know that I. Well, I'm not tied, I mean, you know, I did that as an interpretation there, right? Right. I mean, there's but, a there's a lot, but you get that feeling, right? It like it reminds me of you know we we I you know I don't know how much or not how much this is a universal experience, but like I you know you meet a lot of people, especially from that area of America, who are not necessarily doing super well. Uh, right. But like put on a real brave face, you know what I mean? Like want to be very clear that like, no, this is all fine. Like I'm doing great. Um, I had, you know, family members in that. It's it's a thing, right? Like people don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. They want to look like everything's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, and you get that kind of, you do get a sort of vibe of that in this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's no, all the stories of his childhood, there's no real patho- pathologizing it. You know, we get we get the bit later on where he's talking about preachers being pimps uh, that we could probably, if we wanted to make the logical leap, but Zwigoff does not necessarily lead us to making that logical leap, tie back to talking about how his father became a minister and gave up gave up mandolin music when he became a minister because it was the devil's music. Um, though interesting that his father decided that 
it was uncom- unbecoming of a minister to play the mandolin, so he just gave it, <laughs> gave it well, to his son. Well, you know, and then he, <laughs> we also hear stories of his father teaching, like, other people later on. You get this sort of impression of, like, right. perhaps his father didn't necessarily, you know, probably didn't want to give it up. Really right. liked doing it. Right. And felt the need to, to do it. And, and and it's almost sort of the flip side of that, you know, preachers as pimps sort of rhetoric in that, like, you know, how much sort of was put on his father, possibly put on his father, to like, uh, you know, meeting appearances and stuff like that. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, the flip side of that, um, of, you know, you know, he never comes out and says it, but there is... Plenty of preachers start preaching for the money, not for the <laughs> right. And and not for, and not you for know, and there, else. there might be some pathology there. Like it's, it's quite possible that can. his father got into that partially because of well, this will pay bills. Like I will be able to yeah. feed family, my family, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And and but also, I I think to a certain extent, you in the way Louis, uh, you know, Armstrong talks about his about religion has a sort of also that idea of like he doesn't seem to hold religion necessarily in high esteem in general as a concept necessarily. Um, right. Probably. I, I imagine that there's probably a connection there. We, again, we can never know because we're not going to like try to completely psychoanalyze him or some nonsense like that. But like one has to imagine that a lot of what he was doing in his heyday was stuff that probably also got condemned by preachers that he encountered. And, and so, right. It's easy to imagine how somebody would walk away with a fairly negative view of religion if right. the thing and you do is roundly sort of you know criticized everywhere right. everywhere you go. Yeah. And and in the time period and uh and locality he's growing up with there is a racial element to that religious criticism mm-hmm. of the music as well uh of this being, you know, black people music. Uh Right, and even, then even you know, even into when I when I was in elementary school in Maryland, we went to a uh, I went to a private Christian evangelical school that that did not did not believe in drums okay. as uh, as pagan jungle devil music stuff. Wow, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, those ideas persist right. uh, in in. Yeah, and I uh, would argue that in, in a really weird way, I think what we talked about the sort of desexualization of of in documentaries about music, you know, blues and things like that. And I would say that to a certain extent, some of that is a flip reaction to the fact that a lot of you know blues and jazz and everything ha- were often attacked as being overly sexual as a. Yeah. As a as, as a, a racist attack, them. right? Like that's yeah. one of the ways right. they were. There was a sort of a you know an overt thing where there was an attempt to associate black people with overt sexuality, along with the music that was produced by black musicians as overtly sexual. And so I think a lot of documentaries that want to cover that kind of overreact in the opposite direction and try to strip all the sexuality right. out of discussions about you know you know music to yeah. try to like you know <clears throat> to, what i mean does that make sense right. that, to talk to talk about the music purely as the artistry and talent of the musicians um and and strip away 
that condemnation of the sexual aspect. Right, because it was used what as it, an attack so often, but yeah. it also ends up desexualizing the thing that, of course, it has some sexual components because it's well, human beings doing it, human being stuff. Yeah, but the 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 humor and the sexuality of the lyrics of this music is part of the artistry. Right, that's and also true. Right, bad. right. Well, especially <laughs> so, in the case like, of something... Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's true of other, you know, you know that's true of... You know any of the music that they try to that people try to do this with, and it and it's just I think it's overreaction, right? Like they people have right. trouble finding the the and the reasonable balance between those two things, right? You know, and we we absolutely are still dealing with those ideas today. Just mm-hmm. look at a month ago when Lizzo played a flute from the Library of Congress. Yes, absolutely, uh, and conservatives. In the US lost exploded. their goddamn fucking minds. <laughs> well, but, you was... know, we see it all the time, right? Because it still happens yeah. with like now it happens more with you know rap and hip hop, but like of course, where it's just like you're just decided that this music is more sexual than the you know yeah. music being made by right. white artists, and then you have to ask yourself questions about why are you why are you doing that? Why are you thinking those things? Yeah. Uh, and then you know thirty, you know forty, fifty years from now. When documentary, you know, even thirty years from now or something, when documentaries are made by about this era of music, documentarians will feel a a a, a, a sort of tension about well, how much, how do I separate the racism from, you know, what is actually right. you know sexual in the music because I don't want to play into the tropes, but I also want to tell right. things as they are. You know what I mean? There's a lot there. I mean. <laughs> It's under. It's one can understand how our you know documentarians yeah. fall into that tra- into that trap pretty right. easily, right? Yeah, it's people people acting in in good faith, thinking that they are mitigating a problem by uh, sidestepping it right. instead of yeah. embracing it and celebrating it for what it is. Uh, and you know, I think you know, brought up Lizzo and could bring up people like Megan The Stallion, and I think a lot of a lot of talk around, say, twerking, uh, does, does get similar things of, of right. people saying, you know, the people defending twerking as an art form, saying that it's non-sexual. It's like, well, of course it's sexual. That's why it was created. I mean, to begin welcome with, to the, but that's the not concept of dance. <laughs> yeah, the concept of dance is sexual. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, um, but that doesn't make it bad, right? Uh, well, and that and that's the problem, right? Is what they're really or, responding or to inartistic. is inartistic. Right. What they're really running into is is a, an even deeper problem of of the 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 problematic association in especially America with anything sexual being bad. Right. Which yeah. is which automatically makes all that anything kind of a landmine or a landmine field. Right. Like we just like, OK, well, I you can't there's almost nowhere to step without getting in trouble. Right. Right. Um, Right. And uh, and and Armstrong's defense of the ABCs of pornography, he essentially says exactly that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people a lot of people think that pornography is something vicious or ugly and all like that. But it's a basic part of our life. Believe it or not, is is his line. Right. So, you know, it's I think I think Swigoff, it we we spent a long time. With with banjo, I keep looking at looking at the porno. <laughs> it is but, quite long. I think yeah. I think to a certain extent, though, I I get it though because like it's yeah. just such a kind of fun situation. 
Yeah. Where it's like, well, where do I cut out how kind of goofy this situation right. is? Because like, and this is just one man showing another man his porn <laughs> that yeah. he keeps in a locked suitcase. It's, yes. <laughs> His, his 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 locked illuminated manuscript porn yeah, that he yeah, can and, and the fact that he decided so. to keep his porn as essentially an illuminated manuscript is just yeah you where do uh, you cut that like where do you say enough I, is enough i don't know and i 100% believe that this is a thing armstrong decided to do not a thing Zwickhoff said hey you should you should chill in oh no and that in. and that and that yeah. is a key I think that is a yeah. it, not not to continuously abuse the Mazels, but <laughs> right. like that is a key difference. Is in the Mazel sort of scenario, <laughs> they would find out about this and they would be like, "Hey, you should really show that to, you know, yeah. you, you should break that out and we should talk about that." Whereas here, you get the impression that Armstrong is leading is leading the charge here. Like he is he is absolutely, you know, he is definitely a person who knows what he wants to do and when he wants to do it, and he's like, you know what. You know what time it is? It's porn Bible time. <laughs> it is. It is. And you know what? Um, he was right. It was porn Bible time because it is amazing. Like I said, <laughs> awkward it, when your whole family yeah. is hanging around in the kitchen while you're watching it, uh, and not and mainly because it's like it comes it comes enough out of nowhere where you're like, well, I'm not going to turn it off now. And I yeah. and I based on what I've seen in the movie so far, it's going to be at least somewhat humorous, right? It's not going to be right. just like it's not going to be two guys just getting real horny on 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 screen. Armstrong is too much of an artist to like pass right. up an opportunity to also be entertaining, right? Right. Um, right. And so I was and like, well, we're just going to let this ride and I'm going to like yeah. I'm hoping that there's not like I'm hoping things don't right. get too weird. And they get a and little that is, weird, but it's pretty fun. That is one portion where this is obviously performance is that Armstrong is always fully aware of the camera. Oh right? yeah. But like so, but that plays into it, right? Because he's you right. understand him as a person who has always been really well aware of the camera. So you're maybe not getting Armstrong maybe like what he looks like in his bedroom alone at night, alone at night. But what you are understanding is the way he has lived his life. Right. Uh, because you can you can understand fairly quickly, oh, he is a person who has spent his whole life being well aware of the fact that you know maybe it's not always a camera, but playing to audiences, right? And and there's nothing wrong with me, and that again plays into the fact that like the yeah. movie is titled after his stage name, stage name, yeah, yeah. Armstrong is presented as someone who who is very familiar and very willing to talk to the camera. And to Zwigoff about uh, something that, you know, certainly not at the time, but we would now call code switching. Right. Um, and talking about how he had to act, what sort of music he could play for different audiences and, and what that meant and how, how he could switch, you know, the Italian bar story is, is, is part part of that of, yeah i mean uh, that's you know, a, a very extreme it. version of code switching in the sense right. that he is actually also like his code switching is involving language switching right but right. yeah and that's and that's an interesting aspect you know i, I was it there's a couple of weeks ago we talked about um secrets of the grain and uh leaning into stereotypes other people have about you as a ways of diffusing a situation uh whereas whereas here uh, with that with that Italian bar story, particularly, 
Armstrong is uh, diffusing the situation by surprising them, right? By right, by right. by by doing something outlandish that they they would never assume was possible, which is him speaking perfect Italian right, right. in his Tennessee accent to him. Um, uh, and, you know, and that immediately diffuses the situation. So he's also, you know, he's a guy who, who understands what's expected of him, but is, uh, is willing to surprise people and knows, knows that he's the best. So why, why should he be ashamed of it? Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it is, um, yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, it's just it's just so fun. Just uh, it go is, watch it. It is just it's like, only an hour. Go watch it. Yeah, uh, you're, on, you, you are you are blowing it out a prime opportunity if you do not go watch this movie. I like right, right, right. What I will say is like every time we watch a documentary, I see them. It's like I really, really wish the Criterion Collection had more documentaries in it. Yeah, like because it affords me an opportunity to do something I don't do a lot in my in my own personal time, which is sit down and watch documentaries. Um, right. And I'm almost never disappointed. Like, even the ones we've kind of ragged on are ones that I enjoyed when I watched them. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? And and especially this kind of documentary is just so deeply in my wheelhouse. It it feels like, oh, where have you been all my life? Why have I not just been spending all every waking hour watching documentaries? Um, yeah. You know. Um, so there are there is footage that would could have made this movie longer. Uh, and in fact, the the DVD has uh, has over thirty minutes of unused footage that Zwickoff uh, gave to Criterion to release with this. Okay, <laughs> I couldn't watch He's, that, but okay. Yeah, he says that the only reason this movie is sixty minutes long instead of eighty eight minutes long is that uh, someone <laughs> someone told him. That to to get it shown on TV, it would need to be under sixty minutes. Okay. To be on like like I mean, POV, you know the the PBS documentary series POV, um showed this in like nineteen eighty five, so probably someone or eighty six I think, um, so probably someone told him that if he wanted to be on if he wanted to get it even on PBS, it needed to be shorter rather than longer, right? Okay. Um, but you know, if he was at all familiar with the sort of documentaries POV shows, they're they're ninety minute documentaries all the time. Uh, so like, you know, half the half the stuff I've ever watched on POV was was over ninety minutes long. Um, but yeah, someone told him that it had to be short to get on TV air. Uh, so he cut it to sixty minutes. Um, and yeah. it was too late. By the time he figured out that was wrong, it was too right. late. Right, but uh, at the same time, like. There's a certain sort of joy that comes in it, like being very compact, right? Yeah, I understand that there's a bunch of material that he probably that would have just made it better. I get that, you know. Yeah, and that's that's definitely true, right? Like more of this would have been better, but you know, on yeah. the flip if side, had... like it's it's a very tight documentary. It, it is extremely making the points it wants to make very clearly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's it's. If we had seen this as an eighty-eight minute version, we would have loved it as an eighty-eight. Oh minute yeah, version I'm and, sure. I couldn't imagine it as anything else. hundred. But also, Zwickoff himself says, uh, I think this is from the Criterion essay, uh, quoting him, that you know, he could have, 
or maybe there was a there was an AV Club interview with her, with him that that I read as well uh, from when from when these DVDs came out, Louis Bluey and, and Crumb through Criterion. Um, but he essentially says, you know, I I put it on the DVD. I could have re-edited the film, but I didn't think it would be true to to the art if I right. if I did like a director's version <laughs> for the for the Criterion release. Um. So, I mean, you know, the materials there. It, it like, exists. If you want to go watch DVD, it, you and can, I think, yeah, and like if you, you can if, get a little bit more. Yeah, if you can get access to the DVD, it's great. Um, but, I wish uh, I could have. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, this uh, that stuff's not streaming. Criterion doesn't have this on on the channel, um, and uh, the only the only place this really exists online is I think Apple Apple TV has it and uh, Amazon. Prime has it, but it's rentable on Prime. It's not right, and they didn't include any of the bonus material. Like I can't. Yeah. So there's that, no that, bonus that material. always. I mean, welcome to the reason yeah. why like streaming still sucks, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of bonus material beyond that. Zwigoff does a commentary for it that I'm sure is very interesting, and and I I get some hints of it from some of the interviews I've read. Uh, he talks. I think the AV Club particularly asked him about things he said in the commentary. Uh. And you know, there's the deleted footage, and then that's about it. Uh, there's a stills gallery, uh, right? But I mean, the, and, the deleted footage yeah. would have been would have been nice. Yeah, yeah. I would have uh, watched it. One fun thing that you can kind of tell looking at it: uh, the Criterion cover of this was drawn by Crumb, uh, which is right. Pretty, yes, yeah. Pretty obvious. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, we'll talk more about Crumb next week, obviously, because we're talking about Crumb, uh, but. Uh, but Zirkov does say that that Crumb himself has left left him a voicemail that said, uh, "That said Louis Bluey's his favorite movie." Um, That's and I think nice. it was. I think that the way the way he talks about it, I think that voicemail may have come out may may have been left for him uh, after the Crumb documentary came out. But obviously, they were friends already. You know, like right. I said, they they'd been playing in a band together uh, way back when. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's really delightful from the AV Club interview is that occasionally uh, he'll be asked about something that is just some some rumor about the movie, like that a that a longer director's cut already existed or something. Uh, and he uses that to jump off to tell a story about uh, about interview requests he gets uh, for American Splendor, uh, which is not a movie he directed. Uh, and is about a different comic book artist. Wow, okay. Harvey Becker. Uh, that that people just people are dumb. Is basically the point of what he's saying. That's really yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah. That he made this. He made a documentary about Crumb, so people assume that he and he, you know, he he did make fictional uh, uh, fiction films too. We'll watch Ghost World eventually, which he directed. Um, and he directed Bad Santa. Uh, but, oh wow. Uh, yeah, uh, but but yeah, people people do assume, and and I guess it's also true that uh, uh, what's it? Uh, James Urbaniak plays Robert Crumb in American Splendor. Robert Crumb is a character in American Splendor as well. But uh, but yeah, it's just, nonetheless it's, a very modicum, people, a minor people, modicum of yeah. research would <laughs> right, would right. would correct this problem, right? Like yeah, it's, we're people, not talking about these are people who. 
if you were asking for an interview, you should probably make sure that the person you're asking for an interview <laughs> did the thing you're asking for an interview right. about. Like that feels like right. the minimum level yeah. of of, of you know research. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, that confusion probably stems from people just collapsing Pecker and Crumb into a single person. But but still, to to then reach out to Zwickoff because of your confusion there, it seems like at some point you should have figured that. It, yeah, out but that's before, what I mean. It's like at some point you probably should have just him. you know I don't know opened up the IMDb page or something or just you know yeah. just a little bit. Right. But yeah, it's uh he's a fun guy, it's a fun movie. You know, it's absolutely yeah. You've you've said in the past about the ease of making a beautiful movie. Uh yeah, we've talked about yeah, when you're just how... pointing when you're just pointing the camera at a beautiful location. Uh the ease of making an interesting documentary when you're just pointing the camera at an interesting person. Yeah, There's that is true. Although there, I but... will say that this is the harder version of that, right? Because yeah, yeah. you could still edit Armstrong into right. a boring person, like you know what I mean. Yes. It, you have yes. you possess the power to make him boring by just over editing him, right? And and even like saying to yourself, "Well, I don't want all this, this is like, I don't want all of what you could very easily like categorize as bullshit in my documentary," and quickly sanitize him to the point of boredom, right? Yeah. Whereas, like you know. You know they are they are akin to each other. I totally agree. It yeah. sort of feels like so. You know, so I don't I don't know if this is paradigm shifting, but it is something I I I meant to mention earlier and it got away from me. Uh, according to the Criterion essay, uh, Zwickoff could not get permission to film in the housing project that uh, that Armstrong lived in in uh, in Detroit. Okay, so. Instead, he took a bunch of still photos of Armstrong's apartment, rented a warehouse in Chicago, uh, moved a bunch of his furniture, and the stuff. Now, it's very limited because I don't think I don't think we're actually in Armstrong's house for a lot of what we're doing here. Right. Um, I I assumed that the place be, where they're eating fried they, chicken was his apartment, but I'm not clear yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, it's not actually his apartment, even if it was meant to be his apartment. Right, right, right. Because they just yeah. rebuilt his apartment in a warehouse in Chicago. Right. Uh, yeah. It, that feels like an interesting thing, right? Because that feels more like there's no reason why you would not. You know, that gets into a really crazy paradigm because now you're like, well, why won't the housing project let you record inside of the apart- one of the apartments in the project, right? right? Other than like maybe to a certain extent, now you know what I mean. Like, why would you do that? I, I it's got to be there's they have to have some weird reason for it, right? Right. So then you get into this thing. Well, like, okay, like, is it wrong to recreate an apartment so you can then, in theory, put your subject yeah. in his his natural and you know sort of natural personal environment? I don't know. Right. Well, that's that's a, what a weird question to have to ask yourself in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it really is a ship of Theseus question, too, right? Because you're not in the actual apartment because the actual apartment is not available. You do have all of his furniture. You, you have all of his actual furniture and you've rebuilt the apartment, not in a way to make it, you know, you haven't like made a, made a soundstage version of his apartment, presumably. Right. You've, you've physically recreated his apartment. But, uh, but also, if they refabricated a version of his apartment at the new location, 
Uh, maybe that's why he burned through all of his money week one. <laughs> right. Good point. There does feel yeah. like maybe that was expensive to do. Maybe, I guess, like, well, it gets really weird because, like, I understand the, the, the inherent desire to put your subject in their, you know, personal space, right? But at the same time, yeah. like, maybe you could have just found a different place to shoot that, like, he also enjoyed being in or, like, was a place he spent a lot of time that you could actually get permission for, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, it very that's a very funny thing to to think about. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I don't. I don't know. It could. We we've talked plenty about the nature of documentary in the past, and I think here that that is not that is not fakery in a meaningful no, way. No, no, because you're not trying to make something that isn't real. You're yeah. not trying to create whole cloth, a new world, right? A new universe. But I will say it is it is a weird phenomenon to have happened. Right. And one that feels like more of a question I keep bringing in my mind is like, why would the housing project just not let you shoot inside of an apartment that <laughs> yeah. one of I mean, the <laughs> residents lives in? I don't I don't think we'll ever have a good answer for that. But I also the hunch. answer for that is probably bad. <laughs> yep, that's that's what I was going to yeah. say. It's like, I have a personal hunch that is not good, uh, yeah. but, you know, I'll never, we'll never know. But right. I'm sure the audience can also come up with a personal hunch that that paints things in not necessarily a positive light, right? Well, I think we could probably pull this one to a close. We've been talking about Louis Bluey from 1985, directed by Terry Zwickoff. And next week we'll talk about uh, Zwickoff's... Uh, I suppose the the work that really made Zwickoff famous a decade later, uh, his documentary Crumb on the uh, cartoonist Robert Crumb uh, that really kicked off his career in in a much more consistent way because after after Crumb it was just a few more years before Ghost World. I think I don't know that Ghost World was his very next project, um, but uh, and then. Basically, right after Ghost World, he made Bad Santa. So, <laughs> real turnaround. I just, I just find it really funny that he directed. I, Bad, I know Bad we're Santa. gonna we're gonna bring it up a bunch next time. It, yeah. It's that is a very like, well, that's like that's the life of a director, right? There's that whole sort of like, right. well, now this is how I pay my bills. So, right, right. But um, yeah, he was it, actually. It, this is well. Fun fact about Bad Santa: they wanted him to direct Elf. Okay. And he said no because he wanted to direct Bad Santa because of a joke in Bad Santa that he really loved. Oh, no. A single line in Bad Santa that he thought was so so brilliant that he wanted to direct that. And there was nothing. Apparently, there was just nothing in Elf that he connected that, that way with. That is, so, yeah. It's very, it's just very Oh, funny. well, I guess, you know, I guess in the end, like, oh, well. Next week, we'll see his only other documentary, Crumb, uh, with, uh, with more artwork from Crumb. Because obviously, well, that that would make sense. Crumb did the Crumb did the the cover for this DVD release, but uh, but uh, I believe, yeah, the the Criterion cover for the Crumb documentary is also Crumb's art. Uh, well, and presumably, much like this one, I assume Crumb's work will be featured inside of the documentary right, as well. Right, I, I assume course. we will see a fair amount I don't know. of his work. I don't know. They're the, old friends. Maybe maybe he won it. Uh, apparently, at one point, uh, yeah, before maybe. Crumb, Swigoff was offered uh, offered to do 
hired, almost hired, to do a documentary on Woody Allen. Okay. Uh, and then found out, and this movie does exist, directed by someone else. Uh, I can't remember the title of it, but uh, but they wanted to do a documentary on Woody Allen's jazz band that he plays with and was going on tour with in Europe. Uh, so they did a, a background of that. Uh, and yeah, he told him no. I don't. And I think he told him no because because he found out that it was about the jazz band, not about the uh, about him as a director. But uh, but yeah. Anyway, I'm glad we won't have to watch that. So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Zrigoff can can respect Woody Allen if he wants to, but uh, I don't have to. I, I'd rather not me. have to watch documentaries about Woody Allen if I can avoid it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, we've been talking about uh, Louie Bluey, fantastic documentary on the uh, on the string band musician and visual artist Howard Armstrong, nicknamed Louie Bluey because some drunk woman <laughs> who, who told him she knew he wasn't she knew he wasn't Louis Armstrong. She knew he was an Armstrong. So he's just a Louis Bluey. It's just It's, it's a just very, a very funny like set of like Yeah. Even like how you get there, even how she got there because right. it's like a lot of right. word like drunken word association basically. Yeah. 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 Like she names every other member of the band as a famous jazz musician who shares either the first or last name with them. Right. Uh, and then gets to him, and she's like, "Well, I know you're not Louis Armstrong, so um, it's, just, it's all very silly. I love it. Every story he tells is great. Yeah, period. So he's just, just a very, go very good storyteller. He's just excellent yeah. at it. Yeah, just go enjoy this movie uh, and enjoy Howard Armstrong. Period. And thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Oyatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening. <laughs>